Last week, um, we started a new series called Bigger Than You Think. And uh, we, we started last week's series with a talk called Fascination with the Cross. And we said last week, and I'm not going to repeat everything, but we said that it's, it's, it's really interesting that you'll see people holding a cross, wearing a cross, tattooing a cross, painting crosses, talking about crosses. Uh, and it's interesting, the, the kind of image or symbol that the cross has become to so many people. Uh, and we shared some stories about how that's been very significant for people. And we asked the question, why? And we looked back into the New Testament scriptures, the, the stories of Jesus and some of the letters to the first churches in the first century, and just noticed this priority that the early church and the first followers Jesus had on the cross, this focus on the cross. And this, this idea that God would use crucifixion, because the cross was used to crucify people, that God would use crucifixion to rescue and restore humanity. It's just, you know, just looked at that last week and like, wow, that's crazy. That the cross is really bigger than we think it is. And so what happened on Good Friday, which what we're going to be celebrating in several weeks, is bigger than you think. Is bigger than you think. It's, it, it, what's happened on the cross has done more than you can even imagine. And so I want to encourage you to not just be here today or to maybe listen to last week's podcast to kind of catch up. We have a podcast on our website, which you can go back and hear some messages. Um, but really to consider what the, this whole journey uh, that we're on from now till Easter as we unpack this theme. But here's the question that's in my mind as I start today. If Christianity sees the cross as solving a problem, if Christianity sees the cross as solving a problem, then what's the problem? Like, I mean, if God went to all this trouble if God you know, had this climactic moment in his story and in the life of his son Jesus to, to solve something or rescue the world or restore the world, then what's the problem? What problem or issue or crisis would be big enough, would be big enough for God to allow his son to not only die but be crucified by a secular empire like Rome? Why? And there's this phrase that comes up in the New Testament quite a bit in, in, in the, these letters, if you're not familiar with the Bible, these letters that were written to the first churches in the first century as people were starting to grow in understanding Jesus and start following him. This, this phrase would pop up often. And the phrase was, for our sins. For our sins. We, we read this multiple times throughout uh, the New Testament letters. And uh, here's, here's one instance where this phrase comes up, and I'm going to share a few uh, as we walk through this morning's talk. It's 1 Corinthians 15.3, and uh, it's, it's in the larger context of the Apostle Paul summarizing what he believes you know, Jesus did, which was died on a cross, was buried, resurrected from the grave, and ascended to heaven. That's kind of Paul's shorthand for what, what the gospel is. But here's, here's this first verse, 1 Corinthians 15.3, where Paul says this in the middle of this conversation, he says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The scriptures, when Paul says that, are a bigger part of this story. I think that verse should be on there. If not, then that's okay if you're listening to it without seeing it. But when Paul says according to the scriptures, he's saying there's a bigger part of this story. There's a bigger part of this story that what Christ did fits into when he says according to the scriptures. That what happened on the cross is part of something really big that God's been doing. 
When he says that Christ died for our sins, he's referring to the cross. He's referring to the crucifixion, what we talked about last week and what we're going to unpack in the weeks to come. But then Paul says, and these other writers in the New Testament will often say too, that this happened for something. And it happened for our sins. It happened for our sins. Just stop there for a second. Think about sin. Like, and I, I put a question mark around sin because if you're here today, either you're not familiar with church or you have a secular religious background, um, you know, you might say sin, really? Like, who uses that word? Like, that sounds old school. It sounds, you know, antiquated, ancient, lame, overly religious, maybe a little bit extreme. Like, why would you use that word sin? And does anybody even use that today? And if you're a little bit more on the secular side, you know, you're probably thinking, well, man, society's progressed past this idea of, of sin being evident in our culture or our life or people being sinners. That's like silly stuff. And I get it. I hear you. And I, I say maybe that's a fair thought on your part, you know, that, that maybe people have been beat up for centuries for something they aren't or something they are or something they did or something they didn't do. And we're all good and let's all get along. And so maybe it's like that sounds a little bit passe for a progressive society. And maybe you're on the other side where you're more religious and you hear the word sin and you're like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I'm in like, you know, catechism again or the, my Catholic uh, school that I went to and the nun, you know, she... Literally, the nun banged like my, the back of my dad's ear when he was six years old. Like, and so may, maybe you're thinking that, like, when you say the word sin, you feel like, you know, I had a guilt trip back in church, and I, you know, they told me to do penance for sin, or I got spanked for something, and you're like, I don't get it. And and yet, I hear you, and it's not a word that that we often will use at the office lunchroom, right? Like, I'm, I doubt you've used it this week at lunch with some friends. I I don't know. Maybe you have. Now. But we sometimes know it by other words. People like to soften down the brokenness in humanity by using words like addiction, by using words like deficiency, by using words like disease. I don't just mean physical disease, but in other ways. To use words like failure. These words we understand because they're personal, because we've gone through it or others have gone through it. But I want to say that sin is bigger than each of those words. Might reflect some of those words, but it's bigger than each of those words. In fact, even Christians sometimes, you'll, you'll hear a Christian um, describing sin or defining sin according to the original word that, that will, will, will mean missing the mark. Like, I was going to shoot here, but I missed the mark. That's kind of what people will often say sin is. And now I'm off. How do I get back on the mark? And there's some validity to that. You might hear some po- popular preachers, unfortunately, say something like sin is like you're just not as good as you could be. You could be better. You could be a better husband or a better wife or a better entrepreneur or a better coworker or a better person. And sometimes people just talk about sin that way. But if we dig deep, we know there's more to the struggle of our human experience. There's more to the struggle of our human experience than not just being good at something or not just being good enough or even the occasional lie or deed that others will judge. And so today, um, I want to talk about what sin is and what sin does, because it fits into this whole journey we're on, starting last week, heading right to Easter, trying to look at the cross and stepping back and saying, wow, is the cross bigger than we think? Has what happened on the cross bigger than we think? And I want to, it fits into this conversation. So I want to talk about what sin is and what sin does. And and the first thing I want to say is, what what does sin do? Because often people want to describe what sin is, and without knowing what sin does, we'll often just dismiss it. 
Most of us know sin or its effects by our experience. I bet you I don't have to point to some study or data or TED talk or um, you know, book to, to show you that sin, that we've been affected by sin in our culture. Each of us have lived the effects of sin. There's broken pockets in our world and there's broken pockets even in our lives that we would admit, say, yeah, I, I would say that that's true. Maybe it's personal. Maybe you've walked through a broken relationship. Maybe you're right now working in a horribly toxic work environment and you're like, it's so bad the, the way people are building this environment and you, you don't know what to call it. Maybe, you know, in a simple way, you were just driving really nicely to work on the 20 and someone is agitated and they cut you off like on purpose and then they look at you and they pull the finger at you like it's your fault and you're like, what, what, what did I do? Why did they almost smash me? And, and so... There's things like that. Maybe it's personal. Someone stole from you or something, you know, identity theft, and you have to go through the crazy. Like, why would someone do that? Maybe it's regret. Maybe you've hurt somebody because anger grew up in you or jealousy or envy, and you lashed out, and you hurt someone, and you're seeing the effects of that. Maybe you've gossiped about a friend, and you look back, and you're like, I ruined that relationship. Perhaps it's corporate, You know, we've heard about these stories of polluted water supply in northern Canada or southern California or somewhere in another part of the world. And you're like, the corporate greed that would destroy this water and infiltrate this system and make these people sick is so horrible. And you stand back and say, what is that? I, I know lately, I mean, I think I've just noticed this pattern on the news for the last two, two years or so when a politician gets in trouble and it's like, as soon as they get in trouble, I completely, utterly, 100% deny that this actually happened. Then one week passes, and two weeks passes, and three weeks, and then like seven weeks later, I humbly say that I did this. And I, you know, it's like, and, and you look at it, like, what do you call that? And there's something in our core where it tells us the world is broken. Here's this other phrase, this other for our sins phrase. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And, and the, writer, the writer says this, this is love. He talks about God's love. We sang about it today in, in worship. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, and get this, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's that phrase again, that Jesus sent by God to us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning comes from the word atonement. Atonement means to make one again. Something that's been broken, you mend back together, you bring back together. It it means reconcile or restore. So to atone for sin means something must have been broken and now we're atoning for it. We're, We're making it right again. We're repairing it. We're restoring it. We're bringing it back to life. And see, too often... Even in Christianity, Christianity is only known for like personal forgiveness. I did something wrong. I feel horrible. What am I going to do with that? God can forgive you. Or maybe sometimes Christianity is only known for, I put my faith in Jesus and now I have this ticket to heaven. And so often when you, when you hear somebody talk about sin or faith, it usually comes down to this, as if there's not more to, that God wants to do with us than just remove guilt or just put us in a safe place forever, forever, happily ever after. There has to be more. And I want to go back to humanity's, what I call the story of, of, of the garden uh, or humanity's vocation. And it's in the first chapters of Genesis. First chapters of Genesis, uh, maybe some of you know this as the creation account, the creation story, if you've read the scriptures. 
And um, the, the story of creation starts in a garden. And you might be familiar with that idea. You've heard the image that God created the world, places Adam in a garden. God creates the world. And it's the story of origin, according to the scriptures, and a story of purpose. But it's even bigger than that. It's, it's humanity's vocation. It's, it's God's vision of, of what the Hebrews called shalom. Shalom meant holistic well-being or peaceful well-being. And when we get a glimpse of what God did or in creating the world, his heartbeat, his vision was well-being. And the heartbeat of that well-being, believe it or not, is actually relationships, something that affects all of us, is relationships. God exists in relationship. We talk about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And together, this mutual love and, and relationship, God creates the world. He creates humanity. And, and here's the verse. You can put it back up there. I know you had it up there. Listen to what it says. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here you have the, this creation account telling us that, yeah, God has created you know, light and darkness, sea and land and creatures and animals and birds, and, and God creates humanity in his image. In other words, that humans would reflect a piece of who God is, that God would put kind of his thumbprint into his creation, and that as God creates humanity, he creates them to be in relationship with each other. As this, this, this poem, this description goes on, it tells us that God created male and female and that they would multiply and create communities and then be responsible to manage creation. So at the heart of God's vision for you and me, at the heart of God's vision for creation, before we ever talk about what's broken, God's vision is shalom, it's relationships. See, sin is not something that gets God mad at you. Sometimes that's all we see sin as. Oh, if I do something, God's going to be mad at me. Just like if I do something, my mom's going to be mad at me. Sin is not something that gets God mad at you. It's something that destroys God's vision for you and me and all of humanity. It's something that destroys God's vision for human flourishing and relationship. And it gets in the way in between you and God. It gets between us and God. It gets between what God longs for us and what's reality? That's what sin does. And that hurts God. And it bothers God. And in some way, he has a holy anger about it. But not because he's angry at you. Not because your sin has made him mad at you. Because it's destroyed what he longs for you. And he's angered at sin. The effects of sin is bigger than we think. God's vision for us is bigger than we think. A couple of weeks ago, I had the amazing privilege of... Um, going to Barcelona with my son. My son is turning 18 years old, and he graduated high school last year, and we wanted to do this, this father-son trip. And he had a choice of, of three locations, basically, basically because there was three locations on seat sale. With their, you know, so it was like, you choose, <laughs> choose the one. Uh, so it wasn't like anywhere in the world, but any, any of these three. Um, anyways, besides that, it's, I'm glad Barcelona was in the mix. So, um, 
So he chose Barcelona. We went to Barcelona. It was just an awesome time between us. And if you walk through the streets of Barcelona, you often walk on this. There's these tiles all over the city. Now, there's some versions of this, but this is the most popular tile. Whether it's on the street, like, you know, like we have a cobblestone road in old Montreal. That might be part of the street. It's often on the sidewalk. It's often in, in official buildings as well. It's this constant tile that is there all the time. It's this four-petal flower that has become increasingly popular uh, in Barcelona. For, for years and years and years. It's become part of their history, because part of their heritage. And when I saw this flower, you can go to the next slide that shows kind of just one slide of it. When I saw this flower, and this, I actually bought one, like bought a, a tile, and we were walking down the street, by the way, and there was like a couple of them that were off the road, and we're like, should we take one? Should we just put it in our bag? But they were like really big, and it would have been heavy, and we probably would have gotten caught, and that wouldn't have been good. But anyways, I'm just being very honest with you. I was tempted to take the tile because it was just... Anyways, whatever. Here's a picture of it, and the one in my office is officially purchased by me. I have the receipt, okay? <laughs> 20, 20 euros. Cost me 20 euros. So here, here's this thing, and when I see this flower, I, when I saw it, it just, I was thinking about actually the series we're in and, and just the way God has created us for relationship, and it made me, reminded me of, of the way God has created us for this multidimensional type of relationship that we're called to. And I want you to think about it this way. When God creates humanity, you can put the next slide up, he creates us to be in relationship with him. That's like an upward relationship. That, that we're created to know our creator, to know our God, and, and to experience his love and to love him back. And so that's this one side of the relationships we are created for. And when you talk to people on the streets, or whether they, they're religious or not, secular or not, there's often this hunger for transcendence, this hunger for something beyond them. And we see that God has created us for that. And it's fulfilled in an upward relationship with him. The next relationship we're built for is really even within ourselves. How many people experience their lives and they long for inner peace? Inner peace. Forget about outer peace. Inner peace. They're longing for inner peace. And there's a relationship in essence kind of that we have with ourselves. And God's created us, his longing for us, for human flourishing, for shalom, for well-being, is that we would have an authentic relationship with ourselves, inner peace. The other side of this is with. We have a withward relationship with people. And I know some of you say, my life would be awesome if it wasn't for people, right? I would love my office if it wasn't for my coworkers. I'd love my house if it wasn't for my family, maybe, right? I'm not saying that, but some of you say that, right? And, but we've been created for withward relationships, to be with people. And you know, and I know, and I don't, have, I, don't have to, I don't have to open the Bible to tell you that some of your most difficult seasons in life has been because of a conflict with somebody else, right? God's created you and me to be in relationship in a peaceful, shalom-type relationship with people. And then the last relationship is outward because we live in this world and God created it and he's And even if you read through Genesis 1 and 2, he's given us stewardship over the world that we would take care of it. And how, how often do we feel struggle and does something go wrong because we have not taken care of his world well? So Genesis creation story is these four relationships, God, self, community, and creation. I don't have to say anything else. I think the lights are already going off in our brains of, oh, I get it. This is what God desires. I would want that. True life exists in these four relationships. And here's the, the, the difficult thing. Sin, the effect of sin, breaks those four relationships. 
the effect of sin, this thing we don't like to talk about and would rather use other words for, ultimately, it breaks those relationships. First and foremost, and the most devastating one, is it breaks our relationship with God. And it turns us often in rebellion against God. But what we know from Genesis 1 and 2 and the story of the scriptures is that sin is not just an act. Sin is hyper-relational. It's hyper-relational. Um, and I bet most of you would have a story about how you've seen or experienced one of those relationships damaged, right? If we had the time and we opened it up for, you know, open mic sharing or just the, I bet you there's stories. Now, here's the question. How do you name the source? How do you name the source of what influences that? So I want to move from talking about what sin does to what sin is. And it's two words I want you to think about. It's action and agent. That sin is action, but it's not just action. It's actually an agent, like a chemical, I'm not, not literally a chemical agent, but something that changes the environment of something. So here's first, sin is action. We're more familiar with that, right? Because sin, we, when we say sin, we think something I did or something somebody did. And when you read the Bible, you might read the word sins like plural. And, so, and it's true. It's not untrue. Sin can be our action. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to this first century church in Rome. Uh, and he says this. He says, all, for all have sinned. All of us have sinned, meaning plural, action, what we've done, and fall short of the glory of God. That is a plural sense. So when people confess, they confess their sins, what they've done or what I've done. And I, I bet none of us can deny this. doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is. None of us can deny this. People have seen counselors for their sins. People have seen counselors for the sins of others because they've been so hurt. People have found it hard to find peace from hurtful action that they've done and from hurtful action that they've done to others. And often we feel guilty for our actions. Now, I know there's a lot of Italians in the room. Italians don't even need to act to feel guilty because they've just grown up feeling guilty. You just ask your grandmother why you feel guilty. Um, but that, that's just a reality. But, but <laughs> we'll get back to, to our reality. We do things, and why do people feel guilt for that? It's our actions that will lead to that sin but sin is more than actions and jesus another christian writer saw it as something bigger than just what you do bigger than what you've done bigger and it's the idea as sin is agent sin is agent not a spy agent you know not like mi6 or fbi agent like a chemical agent you know if we threw an agent on this chemical agent on this floor and it would probably affect the floor. It might rip off the varnish. It might even burn through the floor. Who knows? Because chemical agents have a, an active particle in them that does something to whatever they touch. Sin is like an agent. It's a power. It's not just what you do. It's a dominion. And here, here's this other line from the Apostle Paul, Romans 3.9. Listen to what he says. He says, we are under the power of sin. So he says, what shall we conclude? Do we have like any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the change that Jesus and Gentiles alike, listen to this, are all under the power of sin. That's not sin plural, that's sin singular. That's not sin action, that's sin like a power over us. Later on, Paul will say in a couple of chapters later, he'll say sin entered the world. It's not talking about our actions. A powerful force entered the world. Through Adam's sin, but still sin entered the world. He uses the word death uh, in the same way as he uses sin. He says death reigned 
or sin rules. So there's this power over humanity, like an agent at work. Now, the beautiful thing is we're going to get to in the next few weeks as we lead to Easter is God has done something to flip that. God has done something to reverse that. God has done something to free us from that. Um, But for today, I want us to recognize sin is action and sin is agent. And you know this power is real. You know that this thing is real. Because you look at the world and you often struggle to wonder, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Who could have done these things? Who would think of such things? Who would allow greed to get so far? This week on Facebook, the West Island blog is a blog site in the West Island, and she she has a Facebook page, and she posted uh, the unfortunate event of the priest getting stabbed at the Montreal Oratory, and so people were commenting on it. And then I read one of the comments back from West Island blog. It's like, all week, every single day, there has been violence. There's been violent news. I mean, we just get what they feed us, but there's other stuff. And you're like, well, why? Who would do this? Who would want that? There's this magazine, the New York Magazine, back about 20 years ago, they wrote an article on cosmic surgery, cosmetic surgery, and how cosmetic surgery was becoming an obsession, an obsession with beauty and luxury and weight and things like that. And so they write this article, and they get this response from a reader in their normal editorial, and I I want to read the response from this reader, and listen to the reader's language when they respond to this article just about cosmic surgery and the obsession with this, Okay. This is what the, writer, the reader writes back. They say, while reading your cover article, I began to wonder what our society would be like if kind hearts and strong minds were respected and revered. Obsessing about the beauty and thinness is a luxury that only wealthy countries can afford. We worship the media and the false idols they provide us, while in our own cities and elsewhere in the world, people are starving. Yet we are slaves. Vanity is a disease, and we Americans, or insert Canadians, are infected. Here's this, like, ordinary writer back to New York Magazine. They could have written out the themes of Scripture. Oh, if kind hearts, if shalom and well-being was, was at place, that would be awesome. But then they say, but we tend to worship the false narrative And we tend to worship these false idols. Where did they get that language? And then they said these words, and this is the kicker. Yet we are slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to the obsession for beauty? Slaves to the obsession for how we look? Why'd they use that word slave? Because it's like this power over us that we can't control, and it affects us, and it it rules our lives. Yet we are slaves. And look what they say. Vanity is a disease. I know vanity is a, maybe it's, it's, not a, it's an attribute. Maybe it's not a great attribute. They said it's a disease. What does it mean? It's infecting us. It's, it's like it's controlling us. Call it whatever you want. I think they're describing the power of sin. And this, this, another psychoanalyst says these words, and it's on the screen. She calls sin a powerful source that grips us beyond the sovereignty of our wills. In other words, this power that at times we feel like we can't control. And you speak to people that have either been hurt or hurt. And yeah, you would say, wow, it feels like that was uncontrollable. How, why am I influenced in this way? Famous singer and everybody who's younger maybe doesn't even know him, but Bob Dylan wrote these words. You got to serve somebody. 
wrote these lyrics, you got to serve somebody. Isn't that true? He, re- he recognized all of us serve something. All of us serve somebody. None of us are neutral. And at its core, sin is worshiping, worshiping anything but God. Sin is serving anything but God. And whenever God is not the first relationship, everything has the potential to go south. Everything has the potential to go south. Isn't that crazy? Sin has a power. What Jesus did at the cross is bigger than just restoring our relationship with God. But the primary thing that happened at the cross, which we're going to unpack in the next few weeks, is that he did restore that relationship. That was the main at-one-ment, atonement, so other broken relationships could be restored. So other broken relationships could be restored. You know, we think that we're not maybe, you know, this doesn't affect us. And there's this, this, this phrase that I found that I think is very, maybe you've heard it before. It's by uh, an author of a name you probably haven't heard, Alexander Sosensting. But anyways, let's put that one on the screen. It says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. So in other words, this writer is saying, like, it would be so easy if we could just separate evil and good. If we could just separate all the bad stuff and all the good stuff, if we could just separate any of the bad stuff that goes on, keep them contained here, so the rest of us, the good people that don't want to hurt anybody, if we could be, we could be left free. But then, here, here's the kicker, here's the line. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It affects all of us. A couple of weeks ago when the story broke out that, you know, maybe there was corruption with the engineering firm in Quebec and the political government or whatever. And uh, I remember, you know, right away it was like, you know, we had a different version of this. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying what's right or wrong here or in a sense like what went down. I don't know all the details. But I, I, I know immediately we, we watched that and we're like, how could he do that? How could he be so corrupt? How could that government connect with that firm and, or lie like that, right? And automatically we say, or I say, I would look at that and say, I don't do that. I, I don't do that. I, I would say like, I mean, I, well then, first of all, then I start thinking, I'm like, well, I don't run a billion dollar company, so no one's knocking on my door for that. I'm not a politician who connects with the CEOs of these million dollar companies, so maybe I'm not tempted towards that. And then I start to think, wait a second. Yeah, I would never do that. I hope I would never do that, even in that position. But then I start saying, I would never do that because I'm not in that position. Then I start thinking, do I do even a percentage of that at home? Do I do even a slice of that at work? Do I do, am I tempted in, in small opportunities in less damaging ways, in ways that no one is ever going to know? And I say, I think that's possible because the line of good and evil cuts through all of us. It cuts through all of us. But here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beauty of the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is that God restarts his creation project. He wants humanity to flourish. He wants humanity to be in right relationship with him and others. He wants to restore the relationships. He wants to make things right. He wants to heal what's broken. He wants to turn us back to our creator and turn us back to each other and grow by his power and love that will change us from the inside out. So here's the last for our sins verse, Galatians 1.4. It's again a first century church. But listen to what the writer says. Jesus Christ gave himself, here's the line again, for our sins. 
gave himself for our sins. And here's why. To rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to restore us, to bring us back, to, to, to restore us out of the damaging effects of sin in our lives. And the next verse is maybe one you've heard before. Jesus writes this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. God didn't send Jesus because he hated the world. God sent Jesus because he loved the world. And God is hurt by the destruction, the damage that sin has caused that we all feel. And he says he's loved the world so much he sent his only son. Why? For eternal life. Not just for, for a safe place forever after, happily ever after. Eternal life can start today. Goodness and grace and peace and shalom as we're in right relationship with God and other people. Now, here's the thing. God could not, did not leave us under sin's power. He could not, and he did not. He sent Jesus, his son, for us. And that atonement, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, what happened on the cross, that's God judging the sin and evil of the world. But it's also, God, it's a sentence for the world, but it's also a path for us to come back and a path for us to be in right relationship with God. Sin is bigger than we think it is. Sin is bigger than we think it is. But you know, here's the beautiful thing. The cross is also bigger than we think it is. Sin is bigger than we think it is. The effects are are massive, but the cross is bigger than we think it is. What does that mean for you and me? And I'm only going to like drop a seed for you. Here's the beauty. When Jesus walked to the cross, died on the cross, and I'm excited to explain this more the next few weeks, but here's the beauty. The action of sin can be forgiven, and the agent of sin that's over humanity, we can be freed from. When, when we come to terms with what Jesus did on the cross, all of our actions before a holy God can be forgiven. But here's the beautiful thing that's even, I think, stronger. The agent of sin, the power of sin, we can be freed from it. And you tell me, you tell me if I'm lying and you tell me if I'm wrong and tell me if you would, you would think otherwise, but what would your life be or my life be like if we could walk in forgiveness and freedom? You, anybody in the world, any society in the world, any neighborhood, any work environment, you tell me that any place, any community of people in the world would not be thrilled to walk in forgiveness and freedom, forgiveness from sins, plural, and freedom from sin, singular, the agent. It's so possible. I'm going to share a story as we close, and then I'm going to fully wrap this up. A couple of years ago, 15 years ago, I met a couple. I was serving at another church, and it was a smaller church, and it had like wooden pews, and um, I was uh, doing something on the front of the, the church building, and in the back, this couple comes in for the first time, and uh, they looked, they just sat at the, like, sat at the wall. They didn't even sit on one of the, ch- like, things. They just sat at the wall. They looked angry. They looked angry at the world. They looked angry at each other. They looked angry at us. I don't know. They just, they just looked really, like, in a bad, bad place. And uh, we, got, we got, slowly got to know them and got to hear their story. And they were really, really in a bad place because um, one of the spouses 
had betrayed his marriage over and over and over and over again. Um, and and it, it just destroyed their relationship, destroyed trust, destroyed everything. And when they walked in that day, they were ravaged by how sin affected their relationship. And it was the action, yes, but it was also the agency, the power of sin that just had a hold on their life. And I remember slowly, slowly, how even though sin had totally affected their marriage and totally affected their relationship, something happened as they started to clue into what God was doing and what God did in Jesus and what God did on the cross. And they actually discovered the forgiveness that comes at the cross and they discovered the freedom that comes from the cross, from the, the action of that sin and the power over their lives. And something beautiful happened that, that started to get mended again. And so when, when, when I saw that happen, I thought, oh man, how incredible that was. That these two people who were ravaged by sin in their life, totally messed up their marriage and other relationships. As they started to get to know Jesus and what he did for them, it started to get restored. Now, there's no doubt in their mind, sin was bigger than they ever gave it credit for. I bet you when they walked in that place, they wouldn't have used the word sin. They wouldn't have never, they would have like, why would I use that word? That's such an old word. That's not me. I'm not affected by that. And I think they realized sin was bigger than they ever gave it credit for. But they also came to discover something even better, that what Jesus did on the cross was bigger than they ever gave it credit for. And it started to change their lives and change their heart. Why don't we stand as we close in prayer today? Now, at the end of this talk, what do we do with that? You know, some of you are here just because you came for baby dedication and you're listening to me me speak today and you're like, thank you, next, you know? Maybe some of you are sitting here and you're listening and you're saying, I didn't realize this. I didn't know that sin was bigger than that. I didn't realize the cross was bigger than that. And my encouragement to you as as we wrap up today don't leave this place telling everybody how bad they are. Don't leave this place saying, oh, you know, like you've sinned this way or somebody sinned this way or start labeling that. That's, that's God's, God, God works through his spirit to, to convict us. And God works through his spirit to convict people. I think my hope for you today is that you would make just one step closer to discovering how big the cross is. One step closer to how big Jesus is. One step closer to knowing him. Because my job today is not necessarily, and over the course of the next five weeks, people could know about sin and nothing happens. But I think people will, they will never know the gravity of their sin until they encounter the depth of God's love. When they encounter the, and when you encounter the depth of God's love, all of a sudden you're going to see things differently. So my encouragement to you is take a step forward into God's loving care, into who Jesus is, into discovering who he is. You can even start that today just by any way you want to express that to God. You might just say, Lord, I want to know more. I need to know more. I want to understand you more. And we're a kind of community that wants to help you in that. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we sang earlier that you are such a good, good Father. It is who you are. We're so grateful that out of your love, out of your love, you sent Jesus. And sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult for us to even fathom the effects of sin until we fully come to know the, the incredible depth of your love. 
So as we wrap up today, God, would you make your love so visible and tangible in our hearts and lives and minds today? Reveal your love and your grace and the incre- your incredible son, Jesus, to us. God, for any, even any little small steps that some people are taking today towards discovering who you are, because there's, maybe some are sitting here today and thinking, yes, I wish my life I wish my life experienced more forgiveness. I wish my life experienced more freedom. And some maybe are sitting here today feeling they're stuck. They're stuck. God, and I pray that as, they, as you reveal yourself to them, you would, they would be able to see a hope that they don't have to be stuck. That there is hope to walk a path of forgiveness and freedom because of what you have already done through Jesus on the cross. And God, we pray that, that all of us, as we come to know you more, all of us as we come to follow Jesus more, all of us as we come to discover you more, um, would see these, these relationships with you, with ourselves, with each other, and with the world flourish in the way that you long for it, God. And may, be, may it be a witness to your great redemption and rescue in Jesus. God, in your name we pray. Amen.